Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Um, That was the encouragement in the beginning. And we will open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at a verse that we have landed on many times, um, many times together, including last week. Um, If you've been tracking, then this verse is not going to be uh, by surprise, something new. We are coming to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to begin that. Um, You know what? Let's start reading in 17. We'll read all the way through 21. Um, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. I'm reading along. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. That's important. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Everything of the old is passed away. It is dead. It has been buried Now we are a new creation, a new creature. We are a new version of human. We are no longer what we used to be, bound in our trespasses, captives to our lustful desires, prisoners of the sinful persuasions and temptations by the blood of Jesus, the wisdom of the cross, the power of God's own son living a perfect life laid down for you and for me. Anyone who is in Christ that has been born again from above, that now the Holy Spirit has taken up residency on the inside. We are being conformed into the image of this perfect man, this pattern, this beautiful King, Jesus the Son. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, then you are a brand new creation. You are a new creature. You are no longer what you used to be. You are something entirely different, a new version of human. Jesus, of which is the last Adam, the prototype. There will never need to be another. Jesus has lived the perfect representation of what humanity was meant to be. He was a man filled with God's spirit. We know that from Colossians 1 and other places, obviously. But Paul is communicating in 2 Corinthians 5, if there be any among you that are in Christ. This is your scenario. This is the situation that we have all entered into as believers in Christ. And he says, for that reason, now all things or all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, We have leaned heavy upon this over the last weeks. Namely, That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And here we go in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We'll keep going. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Last week, we took a look at, after reading this and opening with this, we looked at a verse in the book of Peter where Peter says, you can't consider that God is slow or to mean that he is delayed somehow. And last week, we hopped into a subject matter, if you could, uh, delayed but not disconnected. And Peter's encouragement was in response to people mocking and criticizing in the conversation of the return of this wonderful king, the second coming of Jesus, that great and terrible day of the Lord that prophets prophesied about. And even Jesus himself in Matthew 16, after the invitation to the gospel, spoke of himself. This is not Peter's opinion. He is just echoing 
what it is that Jesus has already delivered. He has revealed the Son of Man will come again. Riding upon the clouds, glory and authority of his Father, host of angels, coming with his rewards and with his judgments to recompense men. And Peter's encouragement was, you can't consider God to be slow as you would think about time. He's not slow. He's patient. He's patient because it is his desire that none would perish, but that all men would come unto repentance. That none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Um, we have a particular mission in this age. And when I say this age, I mean the specific window of time that you and I are alive for. Uh, we are alive, again, in between the two comings of Jesus. Jesus has already come the first time, which we know is over 2,000 years ago, but he is coming again. And in that conversation, our lives are bound up in the tension of that middle space. We are living post the first coming, but pre the second coming. And Paul is communicating to those that are in Corinth. He recognizes that there is a ministry that we carry upon our lives as ambassadors. And there's also a word that we carry upon our lives as representatives. And part of that, Paul communicates, is reconciliation. He says, we beg you on behalf of God to be reconciled to him while there's still time. While there's still time. Because as we've been discussing, there is coming a very real moment where there is no longer going to be time to get right. There's coming a very real moment where there's not going to be any time left in order for men, women to repent. There's coming a specific time. Jesus told them, no man knows the day or the hour. My father has reserved a moment in time in order for time to come to a conclusion. And that will be where he unseats the sun, so to speak, from his right side, where it is that we know he has been enthroned after suffering obediently, even unto the point of death as the last Adam, but is now resurrected from the dead alive on the other side of death as an eternal human, a glorified human on the other side of death of which he considered himself to be the first fruits of many that would follow. Colossians tells us he is the firstborn from the dead so that in all things he might have preeminence. And he told them, no man knows the day or the time, the hour. The father has reserved this. But the time that he is reserved, there is coming a time that he will release the son to come again. And the son will come and time will come to a conclusion and this is, this is startling. Um, this should be gripping. This should cause us to live in a way that is incredibly sober as we realize the severity of that statement. There will be a time when there is no more time to get right with God. Jesus said it'll be as in the days of Noah. He said that they literally will be partying, drinking, that they'll be doing their own thing. And then the sign in the sky, the trumpet will sound, the lightning will flash, the sky will separate and the sign of the son of man, he will appear. And first Thessalonians four tells us that we understand in that moment, the dead in Christ will be raised and those who are alive at the time of his appearing, that together we will ascend to meet him in the cloud. And then we will descend with him. But Paul is communicating that in this tension where our lives are being lived out, right? We're living in between the two comings. So our life is found, bound in the tension, hanging between the two comings. And as we live our lives, Paul is communicating that there is a very real mission that he has observed there is an interest that God has that Peter also communicates. He's not being delayed. He's being patient because he has a desire. And that desire is that men would not perish, that time would not conclude, which would bring men to perish because they have not repented, but that God's desire is that men would repent, that 
we would repent. That Paul echoes, be reconciled to God. He says, I beg you. And he understood that there was a ministry. He understood that there was a word. You see, Jesus came lovingly into the world and preached the kingdom and offered an opportunity for men to repent. He said, for the kingdom has drawn near. Repent and put your faith in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said, the kingdom has drawn near to you. The king has come. Repent and put your faith in the gospel. I understand that there's coming a moment where men are not going to have an opportunity to repent any longer. And those who die or those who come to the end of their breath in that state will face this man. They will face off with this man. They will come to the judgment seat of Christ. I, I get it. We, we don't hear a lot about these things anymore. Now it's all patty cake, patty cake, Jesus man. Now it's all, hey, I, I, you know, Jesus does whatever I want because he loves me. And, you know, the blood of Jesus has covered it all. And I'm now just here living my best life and I can do whatever I want because all my sins are covered. And that means that I can live in luxury. And that means that when I say luxury, I'm not talking about extravagance according to worldly material things. I'm talking about the luxury of living life according to my own desires and wisdom and preference, even if it includes um, the entangling of sin. Uh, where we no longer see the need to be separate from sin and the condition of sin because the blood of Jesus has covered all of my sins, past, present, and future. Um, but friends, be, be clear on something. If we die without having repented and having become born again, um, we will face off with this man and it will be a tragic scenario. Um, that's not my own opinion. If you read this book, that is the conclusion that you come to. Um, but Jesus came in love with an offering for the Son of Man comes to seek and to save those who are lost. And Paul recognized a similar mission. He said, while there's still time, we are lovingly reaching out to creation, to people, and begging them to be reconciled to God. Because again, there's coming a moment when time will conclude and this age that we are living in, the tension between the two comings will be no more because the second coming will happen and time will wrap up and then there will be no more time. But in this moment that we have, I encourage you to pray um, because as it has been said, history belongs to the intercessors. Uh, I want to ask you a particular question. Um, how have you been handling the scenarios that we have been facing? And have you been handling them prayerfully? And have you been handling them prayerfully the way that God has prescribed for us to be handling them? Uh, you see, what, what is interesting is that we do not have an exemption from love. When we consider Jesus and Jesus being our pattern, again, Jesus being the prototype, Jesus being the life that our lives are now being conformed into the image of, right? right? This is the reality. The Holy Ghost has been shed abroad in our hearts so that we now have come to know and have been brought into this extravagant love that God has towards his creation, his sons and daughters, Romans 5. And now, as we are in Christ, we are now being conformed to the image of this Christ. Um, well, let's consider some things about this Christ that potentially are going to be very challenging to the image that our lives are being conformed into by the work of God's spirit that is now alive in you and it is alive in me. Uh, we recognize in John 13 that Jesus is the king who serves. That he is the king who rather than exalting himself to the highest place chooses to take the lowest place uh, 
to serve those that he loves and even those that betray him. He washes the feet of his disciples. He washes the feet of his betrayers. He looks across the table at those who he knows is trying to assassinate him and benefit monetarily off of him. And he says to them, things don't have to be this way. John 13 tells us that he knew who he was and where he came from and where he was going again. That's the way John 13 opens. But it says because of this confidence in his identity, he chose to serve. John 13 reveals to us that in the kingdom, as it has been said um, by a man of God that I deeply admire and love and honor, that in the kingdom, kings carry crosses. John 13 reveals to us that Jesus chose to go to the lowly place, not just in an immediate way because of the perceived benefits from it. Um, you see, th this is worldly in its, in its perspective um, to think that we could uh, leverage certain moments in order to be exalted in the minds of people if we can just act humble enough and serve well whenever the moment is created. Um, Jesus is not trying to leverage a particular moment or instance in order so that he can get what he really wants, which is to be exalted in the minds of people, but he is serving because it's what he embodies. Um, he is lowly. He is broken. Um, he says this about himself whenever he opens up in Matthew chapter 5. He says for the poor in spirit. He says for the peacemakers. He says for the meek. Um, he is not just giving us behavioral modification tools. Um, he is revealing who and what he is. The power source. His DNA. His makeup. We realize in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that he wouldn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. Man, praise God that some of us don't actually have equality with God the way that Jesus did. Because we would have been wiping people off the face of the earth a long time ago. We would have been dealing with things the way that we feel like they should have been dealt with. We'd have been giving people the business. We'd have been righting wrongs the way that we feel like justice should be served. And in all of our man's fleshly carnal anger, uh, at least this is what James tells us, right? That the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, in all of our carnal anger, in all of our fleshly enmity and hostility in all of our humanistic perspectives and tendencies, man, we'd have been giving it to folks a long, long time ago. Um, but here you find Jesus in the midst of people who deserve for him to treat them a certain way. People who deserve a certain penalty for their wrongdoings. Here you find a king in the midst of his creation. And he is not just subject, subjecting himself to ill treatment of sorts or to negative perspective and criticism and hostile opinions. Um, but he allows himself to be beaten and battered with hands that he formed. <laughs> um, right? We, we understand Colossians says that all things were made by him and for him and through him. And ultimately back to him. Um, we understand in John 1 that he is the word that was in the beginning with God. Who was God. And that this word through which all things were made. Right? We see that even in the beginning of Genesis. The release of the word into dark chaos, void space. We understand that he subjected himself to the criticism uh, voices uh, that he empowered. The battering and the beating with hands that he formed. Um, the will that he empowers um, to reject him, to crucify him, to kill him. And we find an interesting posture on the cross as he is being crucified. Um, you understand that we can go through the gospel and that's, I, I love the Gospels. 
you should love the Gospels. I understand it's not just what we are supposed to say, but we really love the Gospels. We love all the Bible, as a matter of fact, because we love Jesus. Um, but in the Gospels, we find a variety of perspectives about the way that Jesus lived. And there's the inclusion of certain things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are synoptic, if you would. They are very similar. And in Luke 23, 34, we find Jesus, the king, hanging on the cross. And he is, he's about to give up his life, right? No man takes my life from me, but the father has given me power to lay my life down and to pick it up again. Um, and no greater love has any man than this, that he would be willing to lay his life down for his friends. You see, we have to understand Jesus just wasn't fitting his life into a specific space because it was the predetermined solution to the chaos that had flooded creation. Jesus was not acting humble as the offering. He was not just trying to muster up enough divine power in order to try and be meek enough, to try and be humble enough, to try and be lowly enough, to attempt to be broken enough. It was not the same way that we would approach certain situations whenever we know that we're going to have to serve in a particular way. And, and maybe we just don't want to do it. Maybe we feel that it's beneath who we are. Maybe we feel that we are better than or higher than or that the, the pace of life that we've endured over time has allowed us a certain place of being exalted above certain responsibilities. And I'm not just talking about uh, the, the normal ministry type conversation, but I'm talking about in the entirety of life. At times we just feel like we are better than certain responsibilities. Like, no, you don't get it. I don't do that anymore. I, I hire people to do that. I, I pay people to do stuff that I don't want to do. Uh, because there's just certain things that, that I've grown up over time to be above now. That's below my pay grade, uh, if we could put it that way. You don't understand, I may have started there, but that's no longer where I am. I don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. Here we find the king hanging on a cross, and he's doing what no other man can do. Y yes, I understand that. He's doing what no other man can do. But he's doing it also in a way that no other man can do. And he's on the cross and he uses his final moments to intercede for those that are literally killing him. In Luke 23, 34, we find Jesus praying and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't hold it against them. They don't understand what they're doing. Now we understand, right? 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul says, Had the rulers of the age known what they were doing, whenever they nailed Jesus to the cross... If they understood what the outcome of that was going to be, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory, right? So we understand that these were people that were being influenced by demonic powers, principalities, the rulers of the age, but Jesus is there in the moment and he is the one that is being killed. He's not praying about it as a spectator of an event that is happening. He is the main attraction. He is the man in the main event. It's happening to him. It's not just happening to somebody that he loves. It's not just happening to somebody that he's close to. It's not just happening to somebody else, period. It's happening to him in real time. And in real time, when it's happening to him, this is the posture that he takes. He intercedes for them. Um, you understand at times, uh, you can always understand who you have something against. You can understand very quickly 
those that you have an ought in your heart with. It's those that you can't pray for. <laughs> um, because it is very difficult to pray for somebody that you have an offense with. Uh, it is very difficult to pray for someone uh, because Jesus is not praying for them in a way um, because you find earlier in the Gospels where the sons of thunder, right? They come to Jesus and they're like, hey, bro, listen, we found some guys that are doing it and they're not doing it the way that we think they should be doing it. We've come to a conclusion. This is what I feel we should do. Should we call down fire upon them from the heavens? And Jesus is like, hey, guys, listen, man, um, love your zeal. I love that you're all in. I get it. You're close. Like, I, I understand all of that, but you don't understand the spirit that you're operating in. Um, it's important to look not just at the fact that Jesus prays, um, because when people are treating us bad, I'm sure we pray too. But it's the what that he prays that is problematic. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't really understand what they're doing. Don't hold it against them. He's interceding for them. He's not praying for the lightnings of God to strike them dead where they stand. He's not praying, even like Elisha, for bears to come out of the woods and maul them to death. He's not praying down fire upon them, even as Elijah did on Mount Carmel, right? This is not what he's doing. He's praying that his father would not hold their trespasses against them. He's praying that the evil acts and the wickedness that was being enacted against him would not be weighed against those that were actually killing him in the moment. This is very troubling. This is very troubling. Jesus, it's troubling because Jesus is interceding for them. And he's our pattern. Jesus is praying and asking his father to not hold their wickedness against them. Father, forgive them. He's praying for his father to forgive those that are betraying him, to forgive those that are crucifying him, to forgive those with the embodiment of evil that is being enacted against him. He is praying that his father would not just, not just reconcile things up real quick, get him out of a bad scenario, but he's praying that he would forgive them. You see, we see this not just in the life of Jesus, but we see this also in the life of Stephen. Stephen is standing out in the streets. He has wisdom upon his life that can't be refuted. Miracles are flowing. He's a man filled with wisdom and the Holy Ghost. We know that because earlier in Acts, he's one of the men, the seven that get hands laid on him, ordained to the food pantry. But Stephen has now surfaced out in the streets. He's debating with wisdom that can't be refuted. Miracles are on his life. There's a corporate amen, a people, a family that bears witness to what God is doing in him, with him. And it gets him into trouble. And while he is in trouble, he is brought before the leaders. And we'll, we'll just fast forward to the conclusion because I'm sure you're familiar with the story already. But after Stephen gets done preaching to them, Right? Acts 6, he looks up into the heavens. His face begins to shine like an angel. Acts 7, verse 60. 7, verse 60. This is in response to them covering their ears, gnashing of their teeth, charging against him, rocks flying as they're about to stone him to death. This is in response to that. The covering of their ears, the gnashing of their teeth, the charging against him, rocks flying as they are literally about to stone him to death. And he's standing there with a clear vision of Jesus, right? He lifts his head and he sees the heavens open. He sees the son of man standing at the right hand of the ancient of days. Clear vision of Jesus in a moment of hostility. Clear vision of Jesus in a moment where his faithfulness has a penalty. 
clear vision of Jesus when trial and persecution is hitting his life in a very real and in a very hard way. Again, this is him. This is not just somebody else. This is not somebody that he knows. It's him and his faithfulness to Jesus has gotten him in trouble. But in the moment of hostility, real pain, real pressure, clear vision of Jesus. Clear vision of Jesus. And his face is shining. His face is shining in hostility. And they cover their ears. They gnash their teeth. They begin to charge him. And the rocks begin to fly. And it says in Acts 7 verse 60 that Stephen uses this moment to pray for them. And he says, Father, forgive them. For they don't understand what they're doing. Uh, Let me ask you. uh, In this wild year that we've all um, some enduring, some hiding from, um, some still trying to pretend like all of this is not real and their alarm clock is going to go off uh, any moment now so that they can wake up from what has been a nightmare of a year um, and some thriving. Um, In this wild year that we have all been experiencing, let me ask you, how have you been handling all of those that you have categorized as evil, as wicked, as wrong? How have you been handling the betrayers? How have you been handling um, the persecutors, the adversaries? Uh, Because what we find in the life of Jesus and in the life of Stephen Uh, Because again, I I think it's important that we look at Stephen so that we don't create an exemption when we look at Jesus, right? Because it's easy to look at Jesus and to be like, ah, bro, listen, man, no, I get it. Like that's Jesus. It's unrealistic for us. That's cool. That's cool as long as we only look at Jesus, even though we don't have an exemption when we look at Jesus, because it's not just Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus in us. Um, It's Christ in you now that's the hope of glory. The hope of glory is not found in your own ability, in your own fleshly wielding, in your own evaluation of your carnal strengths or weaknesses. Um, That's not where the hope of glory is found. The hope of glory is that Christ is in you. Uh, That same Christ that was on the cross, that same Christ that was in the grave, that same Christ that was resurrected, that same Christ that has ascended. Yes, that Christ, that same Christ, Christ that was there is now here, which means that we don't have an exemption. So we can't even create that exemption when we only look at Jesus. But I do feel like it's important that we look at Jesus and that we look at Stephen. And Stephen is being stoned to death. Um, Newsflash. This is really bad. Newsflash. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. This is a bad day. It's not good. Stephen is about to die in real time. This is not a pretend scenario that he sees in prayer and while he's sitting with the Lord, Lord, I'll do whatever. Oh, send me any. No, no, no. This is not what this is. He is being stoned to death by people that no longer want to see him alive. And in this moment, he takes this opportunity to pray and he says, forgive them, Father. Um, Stephen is praying that those that are stoning him to death would find God's forgiveness. Man, we have a hard enough time praying for people that talk about us. We have a hard enough time praying for people that we feel like have betrayed us. People that have sold us out, right? And we come up with entire ideologies in order to preserve our life from these types of people. You hear it all the time. When you identify a Judas in the camp, get rid of him. Because if you can find him early on, then you don't have to deal with him later on. Right? And we we write books about how to keep our lives safe from Judas. Uh, Well, well, let me me encourage you. Um, John, as much as we love John, right? John is loyal. John lays his head on the chest of Jesus. As much as we love John, right? Even they understand. Even everybody else that's in the 12 understands. Hey man, listen, Jesus has said somebody's going to betray him. If anybody knows who it is, it's going to be John. Because 
I guess John has a certain proximity by way of intimacy. Um, you understand that proximity doesn't always determine intimacy. Um, but proximity to Jesus has created a certain intimacy that John enjoys with Jesus that I guess the rest understood they didn't have the same type of enjoyed access that John had. There was something about John and Jesus. I, I get that. And the rest of them did too. Um, hey, ask John. If anybody's going to be able to find out who it is, ask John. And we understand that, that John, he's, he's Jesus's guy, right? Even John knew that. He writes about himself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, right? We, we all need that revelation in our own hearts. John said it about himself. Um, he said it about himself. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, but we understand that Judas doesn't fulfill that same role. Um, Judas is the one that sells Jesus out. Judas is the one that feels like 30 pieces of silver is better than a relationship with Jesus. Um, Judas is the one that feels like his partnership with the betrayers and his partnership with the assassins and his partnership with the dark and demonic plots against this friend that he has been supposedly intimately walking with for a handful of years. Um, Judas is the one that puts Jesus on the cross. Not John. Um, Judas does that. And Jesus looks into the face of this Judas and says, I still called you. I still gave you access. I still walked with you. I still loved you till the end. Right? Stephen is praying. And he's praying for his betrayers. And he's praying that they would find God's forgiveness. Now, now that's one way to handle the scenario. Um, there, there's Jesus. There's Stephen. But we also find in the Old Testament um, a man by the name of Jonah. And we'll just make this really quick. Because you're familiar with the story just like I am. In Jonah chapter 1. Jonah hears that God wants to be merciful to a people that he has determined aren't worth it. Wow. And God speaks to Jonah and tells him to go to preach in Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, no, sir, I'm not going. But why am I not going? I'm not going because I know you. I know them and I also know you. And my determination is that they're not worth it because I know that if I go, you're going to be merciful to them. I know that if I go and do what you're asking me to do, that I'm going to preach to them and you're going to be merciful to them. You're going to forgive them. You're going to pour out your grace upon them. You're going to reveal yourself to them. And I don't think they deserve it. And so I'm not going. Not going to do it. And Jonah runs. Right, right? That's the scenario that we find in chapter 1. It's actually sort of comical when you make it really simple. I'm not going to preach to them because I've come to the conclusion I don't think they're worth it. I know you want me to go. I know you've put a specific word in my heart to release to them, but I'm not going to do it because you don't understand how wicked they are. You don't understand how they've treated us. You don't understand the problem that they've been for us. You don't understand what I've had to deal with personally because of them and on and on and on. The list goes on because we have a unique way of becoming the judge and the mediator in our evaluation of other people's lives. Uh, but 1 Timothy 2 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man. And he is the man, Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man. There's one. There's one, which means there's not several, which means there's not a bunch, which means that there's not even room for you. There's not room for me. It's not there's two mediators, the man Christ Jesus and Mike. 
Um, and so my opinion of people gets weighed the same way that Jesus's opinion of people gets weighed because I have included myself and exalted myself to the same category to be that I can be a mediator so that I can treat people the way that I feel they should be treated rather than um, identifying God's heart for people and rather than being a representative of Christ and not just my own feelings rather than being an ambassador of his kingdom and not my own emotional instability, um, the ups and downs, the roller coaster ride of my emotions as I interact with folks. No, 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 no. These things are not what becomes the mediator between God and people. There is a man that he has appointed that will have the right to rule all creation, including the judgment that will fall and the rewards that will come. And this man is not me. It is the man, Christ Jesus. But in Jonah's life, we have an interesting picture because he knows what's on God's heart for a specific people. And he has determined that they don't deserve it. And so he runs, right? And we know we have the, the children's church stories and on and on and on. Um, and Jonah gets swallowed up by the giant fish. Um, and he's there three days. And then he lifts his head to the Lord and he begins to pray. And it says the word of the Lord comes to him again, right? It's, it's kind of wild that not even Jonah's running from a specific group of people would change God's mind about those people. Um, the word of the Lord comes to him again and God speaks to him again and reveals his desires again that he is looking for a man that would go and release his desires to a specific people. Go and share with them. Go and preach to them. And Jonah, even though he doesn't want to, right? What he really doesn't want to do is remain in trouble again. Uh, he doesn't want to stay in troubled times, problematic situations, right? He's on the boat with all the people. They identify that he's the source of all of their conflict, uh, right? Because at times, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just skip that. But um, they identify that he is the source of their conflict. Uh, well, you know what? M maybe we will jump into that. Um, he's running and he's in disobedience and his disobedience is now creating trouble for others um, because he's not where he's supposed to be. He's where he wants to be. And because he's where he wants to be, there is real trouble that's being created for people that are now surrounding him and, and they go through troublesome times and they identify that he's the source of the conflict and so they're like hey listen throw him off the boat and they throw him off the boat um but after he decides that he's going to go he goes he preaches 40 days from now if you don't repent god's gonna bring judgment upon you for your wickedness and we find a miraculous situation. The whole city turns. The king issues. The whole city is turning. The whole city is repenting. The whole city is entering into a fast and everybody's fasting. The king, men, women, children, even the animals are on a fast as they are repenting and turning to God. And we see that revival hits a wicked people. Revival hits a wicked people. Um, but what is hilarious, um, again, I'm choosing to find the comical side of things. Um, what is hilarious is that when you jump into chapter four, you find that after Jonah has gone, he has released the word of the Lord. Again, he's preached to a wicked people. He has incited or he has been the catalyst for revival in a city, a whole city and people group is being shaken by the power of God through the release of the word of the Lord, through an obedient man that God called and sent into their midst. Jonah should be celebrating God's goodness poured out on a wicked people, um, but he's not. Um, he's not. You find in chapter four that Jonah is seated and he is having a interesting conversation with God. And it goes something like this. I knew you were going to do it. And that's why I didn't want to go. Right? God asks him, 
why are you so bent out of shape? Like, bro, what's your problem? Like, like what room do you have to be angry? Like, what's your deal? And Jonah says, that's exactly why I didn't want to go. I knew you were going to be yourself. I knew you were going to be good to them. I knew you would be merciful to them. And I knew that you had chosen to do that, but I had come to the conclusion that they weren't worth you doing that. But I went anyways. And I hoped that you weren't going to do it, but you did it anyways. Man, this is absurd. Jonah goes and preaches to them, but he's hoping that God won't actually forgive them. Jonah releases God's desires towards them, but he's hoping that God will still hold their wickedness against them. This is the exact opposite of what we see happening with Jesus, with Stephen. Um, so this, this tells me that it's not just the what that's important, but it's the way. It's the way that really matters. Um, you see, because Jonah goes and preaches, that's the what. But we find that even though he goes and he gives himself to the what, he has not aligned his heart with God's way. He's giving himself to the right activity. But he's not actually allowing God to have his way in his heart. Think about how crazy this actually sounds when we make it super simple. Jonah is willing to preach to them, but he does not want God to actually forgive them. Jonah is willing to go and release the word of the Lord to them, but he's not actually willing to invest into God being himself to them. Jonah would rather see them burn than be forgiven. Jonah would rather see them get justice than mercy. Jonah would rather them receive the payment for their behaviors, which is the wrath, which is the fire, which is God's judgment. Um, but let me, let, me, let me bring it to current day, right? Because that's, that's easy. I, I get it when we look at the Old Testament and when we just, you know, we look at people that are in the Old Testament. Uh, but, but again, we've looked at more people than just Jonah in the Old Testament. We've looked at Jesus and then not only Jesus, we've looked at Stephen. Um, how have you been praying for people in this season that you've determined are evil, are wicked, are other than? How have you been praying for the betrayers? Um, how have you been praying for those that maybe you've come to the conclusion? Um, maybe you've come to the conclusion that they don't deserve God's forgiveness. Um, Paul said as a representative of Christ that he was begging people to be reconciled to God while there was still time. Um, he recognized that there was a ministry that was on his life and it was to reconcile people to God while there was still time. Um, not to pray down God's judgment upon them or upon them as a specific category of people on a specific people group at large. Um, this was how Jonah felt. Jonah had come to the conclusion that there were entire people groups that weren't worthy of God's forgiveness. He had come to the conclusion that there were entire people groups that he would rather see burn than be forgiven. He would rather see them get God's justice than get his mercy. He would rather see them burn by the judgment of the Lord rather than be embraced through the grace of God. Um, Jonah was praying for them also. Um, he was just praying that God wouldn't actually forgive them. Uh, man, have you come to a certain point with people where you've determined that you have the right to be the mediator between them and the Lord and you have the right to now pray that they would get judgment now um, because we're living 
in a moment where there is still time for people to repent. Uh, but is this what you're praying? Are you praying for people to repent? Or are you praying for God to strike them with his judgments? Um, I understand that this seems to get very complicated whenever we apply it to real people in real time. Um, but there's a Jonah-like spirit that is running rampant in this hour. Um, there is a Jonah-like spirit um, that rests upon us uh, as we are interceding in the place of prayer. Um, only we're not interceding for God's desires. We're interceding for our own desires. Uh, and this is what you found in Jonah. Jonah knew very well what was God's desire. And he still hoped that his desire would what would be would win out in the end. Um, let, let, let me just ask, are, are you praying more like Jesus or are you praying more like Jonah? Are you praying more like Stephen or are you praying more like Jonah? Um, do you understand the mission, the burden? Do you understand the word and the ministry like Paul did? Um, or are you more intimately aware of your own feelings, your own judgments, your own conclusions that you've come to about specific people in general or people groups at large? Um, people that have betrayed you uh, people that have stoned you, they've accused you. People that have attempted to assassinate you, crucify you. Um, people that would rather see you come to the end of your life. Now, again, we're, we're talking about things symbolically, figuratively, as we already gave Jesus and Stephen as examples. Um, are you praying more for these folks the way that Jesus did? Father, forgive them. They really don't understand what they're doing. I know this hurts. Um, I know that there's real pain. Um, I know that this is persecution, but I'm taking this opportunity to pray for them, forgive them while there's still time, because I realize that there's going to come a time where there is no more time and there will no longer be the opportunity for your forgiveness to be experienced. But while there is still time, I have a desire. And it is that no man would perish, but that all men would come into and unto repentance. Um, are we praying more like Jesus? Forgive them. Again, this was not a pretend scenario. This was real-time events. Um, are you praying for those who you see and that you've categorized as the opposing political party. How are you praying for them? Uh, are you praying that God would forgive them? Are you praying that there would be a radical outpouring of God's forgiveness and grace and that the power of his spirit would bring in the hearts of those people, bring them unto a place of repentance? Um, or are you like James and John uh, because of your intimate proximity, Supposedly to Jesus, and I say supposedly because at times we can suppose things about ourselves that may not be the reality of what is real about ourselves. But James and John, they had an intimate proximity to Jesus. Uh, and even they, who were very close, who had been given very real intimate access, even they were trying to pray down fire on people. Um, Jonah felt like certain things should have been withheld from people that he determined weren't worth it. Uh, this is where things become very troubling to the way that we would prefer to live our lives. Uh, but as we've already created, we no longer, in the conversation of what we think is right, we no longer have the power to be justified in our own emotional, in our own frugal, in our own fleshly, in our own carnal understanding um, because we are not only limited to what we feel and think but we have access to the mind of Christ we are being made we have been made and are being continually made into a different version of human than what we used to be we have been born again and God has put himself in us and we are now held to the standard of Jesus and not just 
the other Christians that we know to look to whenever we want to feel encouragement. Well, at least I'm not like them. At least I don't have those problems. Uh, at least I'm not in that type of situation. Right? This is what Jesus identified in Matthew 6 as a Pharisaical type mindset. The Pharisee who looks at everybody else and says, hey, at least I don't have that type of stuff to deal with and lifts his head all boastfully in prayer. Are we praying more like Jonah that God would zap certain folks, um, that entire people groups and categories, um, that God would withhold his mercy from them so that they can get what they deserve? Um, let me ask you if this is the way that you've been praying. Um, did you get what you deserved? <laughs> oh boy, um, did you get what you deserved? Are you getting what you deserve? No, we're not. We understand. There's a very quick and simple answer to that. Um, and when we point that at ourselves, uh, you know, we hope that we get grace instead of judgment. But when we point that at others, um, at times we champion justice rather than mercy. Um, Jonah was a champion of God's justice. Um, because he, and, and, and again, I, I get it that there are very real ways even to manipulate this conversation. Um, because we want to champion God's justice. We want to champion God's judgments. Um, but it's not a one-sided coin. God has beautifully revealed himself and will be glorified in himself in the tension of how those two things exist simultaneously. Mercy and judgment. Wrath and grace. But are we praying in these days? More like Jonah, um, which again... Um, Jonah knew exactly what was in God's heart for people. He just didn't want to release it to him because he didn't feel like they were worth it. Um, who is it that you have in your life or in your heart that you've determined are not worth it? Well, rah, 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 you, you don't understand. Like Democrats aren't worth it. Like God burn them all up. Oh, rah, 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 you don't understand. Uh, Republicans aren't worth it. Like judge them. Um, or it could be whoever. Um, Black Lives Matter folks aren't worth it. Antifa folks aren't worth it. Um, Nazi white supremacists and KKK aren't worth it. Um, they're outside of the boundaries of people that God is willing to extend his mercy to. Is, is that really the way that we feel? Is that really the way that we actually think? Or if and how these are the conclusions that we are coming to, what is that being fueled by? Is it being fueled by God's heart? Or is it being fueled by our own preferences of what we would like to see happen to wicked people in the earth? <laughs> um, well, well, you don't understand. Um, no, no, I do understand. Um, I do understand that... God himself, while experiencing his last moments as a man, being brutally murdered, crucified, um, at the hands of betrayers, critics, opposers, hostile people that he created, in his last moments as a man, took those final moments to pray. He said, forgive them. Um, let me encourage you that God is not slow as Peter encourages. He's not slow as if he's unaware of what people are doing. He's not slow as if he's totally disconnected from all of the wickedness that is happening throughout the world. He's not slow as if he's checked out and he's no longer interested because humanity has just climaxed in such a moment where um, all of this foul type of living has just erupted and, and he doesn't understand what to do about all the tragedy that's filling the earth. God is not like this, is what Peter is saying. He's saying you need to understand something about him. He's not slow. He's patient. Um, and while there's still time, he has a desire that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. Um, are you preaching and praying God's forgiveness 
And are you bringing that to people through the opportunity for them to repent? Right? Jonah says, and and we'll wrap things up with this. Jonah says in chapter 4, I knew it. Who have you been withholding yourself from? Um, Because you know that if you release the word of the Lord to them, you know that if you actually begin to pray for them, that God might actually forgive them. He might actually change them. He might transform them. He might actually reach them and reveal himself to them. And in certain cases, because of how we feel about them, we've been unwilling to preach to them. We've been unwilling to pray for them. We've been unwilling to actually bring our lives into alignment with God's desires for them because we would rather see the fulfillment of our desires for them. Um, I hope you get them because they deserve it. Um, I I hope you get them because of the way that they treated me. Um, I hope you get them because of the pain that I've endured because of them. Now again, this can be a person, this can be a people group. In Jonah's case, it was a people group. And he said, I knew it. I knew that you would be kind. I knew that you would be long-suffering. I knew that you would be gracious and merciful to them. And that's why I did not want to intercede for them. Um, Intercession is about representation. Intercession is about mediation. Um, We're familiar with that from one side. Uh, which is, you know, again, Ezekiel twenty two thirty, get in the gap on behalf of the land. The eyes of the Lord search for a man, for a woman that would get into the gap, right? That would represent creation before the Lord, be merciful to them, right? This is what Paul saw himself as a representative, right? In legal terms, in a court, you have a representative, you have a mediator between you and the judge. There's the prosecution, which is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before the Lord. But there is now a man seated in the heavens. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, the son that Hebrews says is the great high priest ever living to make intercession. Yes, intercession is about representation. Paul saw himself as an intercessor in his generation. I am a representative of Christ and his desires and his desires towards creation is I beg you be reconciled while there's still time. Right? So so I, I get it. That may have been a lot in two minutes, but intercession is about representation, but it's not just from the one side. Um, it's not just from the one side that we are more familiar with. It's not just representing creation before the Lord. It's not just getting into the gap on behalf of the land so that God would not have to destroy it. It's not just that we take up the case of the wicked and represent them before God. But there's the other side where we represent God before creation. And Peter says that we were at one point not a people, but now we are a people. And this people is a royal priesthood. Um, priests were a people who had access. Priests were a people who took up mediation. Priests were a people that understood representation and sacrifice. Um, But it was twofold. It was on behalf of the people, but it was also on behalf of the Lord. Represent me before the people and do it well. Um, Moses in the wilderness gets judged. Why? Because God tells him. Now we know up until this point, Moses has taken up the case of the people before the Lord on numerous occasions. Don't judge them. Don't walk away from them. Continue to be faithful to them. And because of Moses's intercession, it secured windows of mercy towards the people. Um, But there comes a moment where God tells Moses, Um, you did not represent me as holy before the people, right? We know God speaks to him. He doesn't do what God says. Um, he chooses to strike the rock instead of speak to it. Um, God tells him in private, you didn't represent me as holy because intercession is about representation. Um, Jonah wanted to see a people get what he felt they deserved. And I'm sure that at certain points, so do you. Um, But God put his spirit in us 
so that we not only could represent people before him in a way that was done his way, but so that we could represent him before people in a way that was done his way. Um, I encourage you in this season, in this hour, um, while we still have time to take up the place of prayer. And as you intercede for people, may we champion in this season what God champions. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. Don't hold their trespasses against them. Forgive them. Um, we are living in an age of mercy and grace. And, and yes, there are moments of unique judgment. But overall, we are living in a moment of mercy and grace. Because again, there's coming a time when there will be no more time. But while there is still time, may we intercede well. And may we represent him well before the people. Because we know what's in his heart. And he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Man, let's bring the opportunity for repentance to people where they are. And let's preach to them and let's pray for them. And let's intercede, again, representation, well, while there is still time. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.